0: I'm Ed Randall, and you're listening to Baseball and Barbecue.
1: Music's podcast,
0: and you are listening to Jeff and Lem on Baseball and Barbecue,
2: one of my favorite podcasts, and I know it's one of yours too. The only problem is, after I get done listening to it, I'm
0: hungry. All right, guys, take it away.
3: Welcome to episode number 102 of Baseball. And BBQ. I am joined by the showy Otani of podcasting, my partner, my friend, Jeff Cohen. <laughs> showy Otani, what do you come up with that? Because you can do it all. Uh, <laughs> Thank you very this, much. <laughs> you are welcome. If anybody knew, I mean, you're busy booking guests. You're busy editing. I mean, this is you're busy writing. That is very true. And, and I book guests, too. But the point you is, know. this is your full-time job without being your full-time job. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we, it is episode 102, Jeff. And we were talking about it before we went on the air about all the things we have. And we always forget things. And always, after we finish recording, I'm always sorry that we forgot them. So yes. the first thing, let's just say the first thing. Is we're going to have on this episode, part two of our talk with Joey Machado. Okay. Of Blues Hog Barbecue and Gateway Drum Smokers. Yeah. Joey. and Yes. In the second part of the podcast, we have our interview with Tim Neverett, who has written a book that's coming out, right? Yep. It's out now. It's out. Okay. Right. Well, (laughs) it's out now. It's out now. We'll hear this. It is out. COVID curveball, an inside view of the 2020 Los Angeles Dodgers World Championship season. And uh, we had
4: him on, so we'll talk more about People that. People know Tim Tim Neverett is one of the play-by-play announcers for the Los Angeles Dodgers. That's right. And, that, and, and actually,
3: in between our interview, our second half of our interview with Joey Machado and Tim Neverett, I've got a special story to tell. Ooh. Yes. So stay tuned for that. But Jeff, yeah, let's start with this. We have a contest.
0: Contest. <laughs> I mean,
3: I guess <laughs> our pro- we just shot our production budget. <laughs> oh boy! One of our past guests, Bree Blackford, her company is eldest kitchen. Uh huh. And they were kind enough to approach us and they said, Hey, hey, hey. Did they said, Hey, <laughs> we, we would like to reward your listeners with our bar, oh, actually, our sauces. Right. I keep calling them barbecue sauces. Some are Come barbecue sauces. Some are grilling sauces. Anyway. You can use it anyway. Yeah. Right. Three of our listeners, if you can tell us, either through the interview that we had with Brie Blackford, which was one of our episodes. She also has a website, Elda's Kitchen. But if you can tell us who is Elda, Brie Blackford is not Elda. That's a big hint. And
4: it was episode number 97. 97.
3: So you could listen to the episode. You could go to her website, Elda's Kitchen. And look at it. And who's, you'll, yeah. who's elder? That's well, Jeff, unfortunately, you're not you're not eligible to win this. Contest. Mm. Yes. Employees of this show.
4: <laughs> and their families are not And eligible. family members <laughs> are not eligible. So and you can tell us a couple of ways. You can email us baseball and bbq at gmail.com. Give us a call. Five one six eight five five eight two one four. And we also have some uh, social media pages. On Facebook, it's Baseball and BBQ. or Twitter, we're at Baseball and BBQ. Check us out on Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue with Barbecues all spelled out. We have a website: www.dotbaseballandbbqbatweebly.dot.com. And please, you know, you know what to do, Len. Rate and review us. Yes, but in this case, rate
3: review, but enter the contest. Because- enter the contest. Yes. You have the chance to win free sauce, and all you have to do is tell us who is Elda. Gotcha. And there are three winners. If we get more than three, we'll put the names in a hat, and we'll pick them out the old-fashioned way. Right. And the sauce will be sent... Directly to you. Right. From them to you. Good luck. Right. All right. So, Jeff, yes. I think we should get right into it. We should get into the second half of Joey Machado. When we last left, Joey, he we were, I, I just happened to listen to it, and it was right as I was referring to, and where else on this podcast can you get this kind of reference? Referring to Blues Hog Sauce and Seinfeld episode. When Elaine was trying to determine if someone was sponge worthy. Enough said. Please, yes. Thank you very much. And we'll see you after Joey Machado, part two. I'm just going to tell you, Joey, I did find the sauce and I used the sauce, but awesome. I was so grateful that I found it that I, it was kind of like, I don't know if you're familiar with Seinfeld yep. uh, with Elaine. And she had a certain method of birth control that she liked. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to know if her partner was sponge worthy because she didn't want to use it
2: all up. <laughs> exactly. Well,
3: I kind of felt like I don't know if the people I'm cooking for are blues hog worthy. Oh, are you so, <laughs> You know, so I because I had to be very conservative with this sauce because exactly. at the time I didn't know if I was getting another bottle. So. Yep. <laughs> but I, I just want to tell you. you Awesome product, Blues Hog. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about the smokers, okay? Yep. So, Gateway Drum Smokers. Yes. What is the association with Blues Hog? So, is there an association <sighs> with the two? Yes.
2: Yeah, so, there's, there's kind of a, a background in this whole conversation of, of what Gateway means to Blues Hog, and Blues Hog means to Gateway, is Tim shear actually came up with this design for this drum smoker. Oh, did. Okay. And you have to understand, Tim Shear is, he grew up in Washington County, Missouri. And Washington County, Missouri is a farming community. So he grew up farming and really and truly it, it's, he was in tractor pulls. So he did like tractor, he was like an active tractor pull guy and that type of deal. He'd his time on the, on the family farm. They had a a huge pig farm. Down there. Still do actually. He he was very involved in a part of barbecue, but he wasn't actually cooking it. After he got out of college and everything else, he actually got into barbecue. As he was getting into barbecue, he figured out the best way to cook was in the drum smokers. So he's actually got it. it's patented. The gateway drum smoker is, you know, is, is his baby. There's been all kinds of versions of that cooker. But they've all been very, very similar to what is today. And Tim actually only cooks on drums. That's it. So every time that that he cooks any event, every world championship he's ever won has come off of drum. Actually, as we cooked for Memphis in May, and for a lot of people who don't know, Memphis in May being the world championship contest that it is, you cook either pork ribs, pork shoulder, or whole hog. One of those three categories competing against each other is what wins Memphis and May. And the other thing that you have to do at Memphis and May is it's not just turning meat into box and, and blind judging type of thing. You actually have to do an on-site presentation to judges at that event. And not once, not twice, but three times. You have to go through, you have to go through a lot of product for that deal. So you got to cook three hogs. You got to cook. Some people cook like 30, 40 racks of ribs. Some people cook 20 pork butts. And the thing is, is for the competition wise, they all got to be the same. So you got to cook the same quality on the number one, all the way until, you know, the very last one. And so when Tim decided that he was going to go cook Memphis, because he that's one trophy he did not have is Memphis and May. He doesn't have a big Memphis and May. They've got some of the coolest trophies. So that was the goal this year was to go down there and win Memphis and May. Not to compete, to win. We went down there, put it all together. Tim shows up. He's coming from one part of the country. I'm coming from another. We already knew that we are going to compete in shoulder. Shoulder is probably one of the, the best categories. If you, if you cook a hog, that's like your best, best, best shot at winning the whole contest. Shoulder is your next runner-up. Ribs is like the last one because ribs have, ribs have not won that contest in like 10 years plus, something like that. The majority of the people who go there, you have a lot more people who cook ribs, a little bit less people cook shoulder, and a lot less people cook hog. If anyone ever wants to go to Memphis and Maine and wants to have a shot, got to cook a hog to have a real, real shot at that for your first time there. So this was Tim's second time, I think, cooking Memphis and Maine. So we show up there and we start pulling drums out of the trailer and the, I brought drums up from Texas. We wound up with like 12 drums and we wound up cooking that many pork butts. So, and, and not butts, it's shoulders. So it's actually the, the pork butt plus a little bit of the leg. So we can only put one of those per pit. So we actually did that on those, on those drums. And I asked him, I said, well, I said, on your practice cook, how long did it take? And he goes, I don't know. We haven't practiced cooked them yet. I'm like, okay. And that's the kind of guy Tim is. Time. Tim has an idea, and he goes, "This is what we're going to do," and that's how what it's going to taste like. Okay, you sure? Oh, yep, it's going to happen. And so, and that's what he is. And that's that's Tim is like this super super positive guy. Everything he touches turns gold type of person. And that's why I really enjoy working with Tim because he's one of those guys not afraid to take on like all these extra tasks and stuff that that most people go, ah, we can't do that. And so anyway, so he did it and he win he winds up winning shoulder. And which is like ridiculous. And we came in this close to winning the whole Memphis in May. And again, like I said, our good friend, James Cruz, he actually won rib. We win shoulder. Myron wins rib. I mean, a whole hog. Comes down to the very final, and uh, it wound up Myron first place. We got our friend, James Cruz comes in second and we came in third overall for, you know, the right. way that it, mm-hmm. it would land. The good thing was, is James Cruz used pretty much all blue saw products. So we, we kind of won. And then Myron, of course, he's just a good friend, you know? So uh, we, the one thing about barbecue is it's very, very seldom that you're going to not be happy for the person who wins especially in my case, because I kind of know everybody. So I'm always happy for somebody winning. And I think that that's the attitude because we have a lot of people in the game who don't know how to lose and don't know how to be happy for other people. We understand, you know, this is, it's a big investment. It's, it's not like just willy nilly. You can't just go cook a contest for a couple hundred bucks anymore. A lot of people have 500 to a thousand dollars invested, whether there's 30 people at a contest or there's a hundred people at a contest. And so we understand, especially now too, you know, all the prices are up on everything. So we know what the investment is, but we also understand too is like Tim's a guy who's got an open door policy. A lot of people don't know that. If he's at a cooking at a contest, he's not gonna be a guy who's gonna go out there and try to grab everybody and shake their hand and everything else. But if you come up to Tim, he'll talk to you all day long. If he's comes and there's a lot of people who they're right in the middle of turning something in and they're going to go, no, 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 you just wait. Uh, I'll talk to you when we're done. He doesn't do that. He's just like super open door policy. You want to come check out, see what he's doing. He doesn't have any any secrets as far as that goes. So it's kind of one of those things that, again, that's the way my mentality is as well. I'm more than happy to explain any anything to anybody, anytime. If I have it and I don't need it, you're more than welcome to borrow it. And I think that that's really how this barbecue thing needs to be. So it's a barbecue family. I respect every brand out there. Luckily for us now with Blues Hog, Gateway, everything else, somebody uses one piece of our puzzle. So they use our seasoning or they use our sauce or they use our charcoal or they use, you know, a Gateway drum. So every event that we go to, there's not a camp that I can't go walk into and say, hey, thanks for being a customer because we know, even if they don't have that bottle out, I know that they're using that product somewhere. But again, but that's the respect that he's built in this industry, that everyone respects what he does. And you talk about the gateway drum smokers. If you go to any of these big contests, 50% of the drums that are going to be there are all going to be gateways. And there's, there's tons of off-brands. Tim does have a patent, he could he could be a jerk and he could go around and sue everybody for copying his design but he doesn't there, i mean there's some people they push his buttons a little bit he might but i mean for the most part people use this particular brand of cooker because of the way that it cooks he has actually physically come up with something that you cannot replicate that flavor on any other situation And it's a combination of the the charcoal and the way the basket's made and the way that creates a vortex of heat inside the drum, Mm -hmm. but they work. And the other thing is, is the advantage of using a drum over any other product is you can cook a brisket in five hours. You can cook pork ribs in three hours. You can cook a chicken in an hour and a half. You can cook pork butt in four hours. It cuts down the time on everything. So all of a sudden, you're not a 225 cooker anymore. Like hey, everyone grew up and you know, oh, you're going to smoke. You got to cook it 225. This th- these things run at like 300 degrees all day long. And what he says is the sizzle. You got to listen for the sizzle. And what happens is when you put that protein on that grill, you, that's the first thing you're going to hear is that sizzle. And when you know that you have that right off the bat, that's what you're going to have the entire time. And it's crazy. There, you can run them, no deflectors in there. It's just running straight over charcoal, dripping grease right over that fire. And that's what creates that that flavor that is so, so hard to replicate. But that's the advantage of, of using a drum and what makes them special and, and how it all kind of came up. You know, we just went and did a, a event in Kansas City. Kansas City is part of these Q events. So there's a guy down in um, in Saint oh, Saint Louis, Missouri. His name is Brian Wabi, and Brian has put on these Q events for I don't know years. So he it, they're barbecue festivals. He brings in twelve pitmasters. They all cook for the public. He sells whatever people come through. We may serve thirty thousand people in a weekend type of deal, and he just tries to change it up. and And we go to different areas. Ah, uh, we did Kansas City. We're fixing to do Denver next month, and then we'll do St. Louis, and then we'll have wind up the year in uh, down in Florida, the the very last event. We needed kind of a gimmick for these festivals, you know, something to draw the crowd. Not only were we bringing our our world championship pork shoulder to this event, uh, but we needed something else. One of the things is is right after Memphis in May, we had a conversation. We go, all right, well now you won shoulder. Now you're going to have to come back and, and beat Myron at, at, at whole hog. And he goes, yep. He said, that's what we're going to have to do. And I said, yeah, I said, we're probably going to have to build a, this big gigantic drum smoker to be able to cook a whole hog in. He goes, yeah, I think we do. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, when we went to Denver or to uh, Kansas, rather, he goes, Hey, we're going to be cooking whole hog. I was like, okay. I said, how are we going to cook whole hog? And we actually have a big old hickory, you know, kind of a commercial pit on our, on one of our trailers, event trailers. I said, "Oh, okay, we're just going to cook it in the old hickory." He goes, "Nope." So we're going to cook it on a drum. I was like, "How are we going to do that? We're going to cut it up, put it in drum, hanging in a drum. How are we going to do that?" He said, "Nope." Building one. I said, "Okay." It's and sure enough, drum. we uh, <laughs> we show up. He sent me some pictures right before Kansas City. It's kind of the same deal. It's that Tim Shear mentality that we get there he opens it up and we, it it literally, it's five foot across. It's like almost like four and a half feet tall. I mean, it's a monster and it's got a winch on it to be able to open and close the lid. And um, so he gets there, hooks it up to power, opens up the lid. And I'm like, dude, this is like brand new. He's yep. He said, we just got finished painting it right before we brought it over here. Wow. (laughs) Like, okay. I said, so how's this thing going to cook? He's I have no idea. I said, but I think it's going to work. And sure enough, we uh, we actually put in um, four baskets like we normally do in our regular drum. And this our normal drums just have two stacks that actually bring our cold air in, one exhaust out. This drum he built, he put four stacks on it to bring in fresh air, one big stack to let smoke out. And we basically put one basket in front of each one of those intakes, four baskets total, one whole hog five hours ridiculous and it probably turned out to be the very first hog that we cooked on there turned out so 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 good that thing is going to memphis in May next year and we are going to chase hog next year but i tell you what is go
4: ahead i'm sorry i'm 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 looking at the gateway drum smokers website i'm looking at the drum smokers and they are unique i gotta say they are unique but not just that they're bold Yes. And the code just pops. Yes. You can get any one. And they're they're really uh, unique. And I can tell going to the shop tab that obviously you have the relationship with with Blues Hog because it's all the products are there. Mm -hmm. So it it was really, uh, you know, I would suggest people listening to this to check this out because it's something I have never seen before. It was really cool.
2: So for a lot of people who, who don't understand what a drum smoker is. You, know, you probably have a lot of this customer in in your in your fan base. Is you know if people are, are familiar with Kamado Joe, Green Egg, right. Kamado Joe, anything like that, ceramic cookers, it's basically a ceramic cooker that doesn't break. So you can take this anywhere. You take it to the beach. You can take it to take it hunting. You can take it camping. You can do whatever you want. This literally kind of cooks the same way, kind of the same theory on here, but. Again, it, it, it gives it a really, really great flavor. So people who look at this thing and go, oh, I don't compete. You know, what's this going to do for me? Well, we actually have like rib hangers on there. So you could actually cook for a whole crowd. You could hang like 14. I've done it. You can hang 14 racks of ribs in there at wow. one time. And I actually did that for a video. And I, you know, I just add a video. Nobody's going to taste it. Um, and it actually turned out really, really good. And you just hang the ribs in there and you let them go. And three hours later, they were done. You didn't quite have the color on them that you can, you know, if you do individual ones and take a little bit more care. But it was a great product. Same thing, you know, you can squeeze in, like, you could literally put four pork butts on there. Chickens, it just kind of depends on how you like your chickens. You're doing quarters or whatever. You can put multiple racks in there and you can cook a ton of stuff. Sometimes people look at these and go, "Well, I don't know if that's the right fit for me because I just want it for my backyard." I've got a ton of backyard people who love this grill, and that's the number one reason is because it's versatile, it's not going to break, and like I said, you you can basically you can do it, you can take this thing anywhere you want. I've got drums today, which uh, I just picked up earlier. Is uh, we're having an IBCA meeting this weekend, because I'm in Texas and our offices are up in Missouri. I can't always have like brand new stuff here all the time for this meeting. I wanted to have some gateway drums there that look good. And so I actually took some old ones that we had. They were actually, I've been cooking on them for like two years, beat, beat up. I mean, just look terrible. And uh, I went, Sam Lassen them. I have a friend of mine who's got a powder coat company here in town. Uh, he just powder coated them for me. Went and put them together this afternoon and they are like brand new. And that's one of the advantages, too, with these is you can change up the colors. You can do, you know, whatever. They're easy to repair. As long as you don't let the things rust out, these things will last forever. And there's actually no reason to let them rust out. There's no, unless you, you literally leave the, the lids open when it rains, that's the mm-hmm. only way that you ever get moisture in there. But again, like I said, is the versatility on these things is crazy. A lot of these guys like to be custom so they'll get custom paint jobs and all this other stuff like mm-hmm. me i love powder coat but they're easy to clean i go to a lot of events i have to make sure that my equipment looks good every time i go so pretty much like one will last me like a whole year looking good and then eventually i just got to get it cleaned up but they're they're a ton they're a ton of fun to, to cook on where where are y'all at in in new york we're on long island oh are you really okay yeah. And, and it's not. And not. I'm, I'm looking for a Deal in there, Russ, and I
4: can't find any.
3: <laughs>
2: no, it's actually Ace Hardware. You can get those through Ace Hardware, and okay. oh, they okay. will. Okay, and they will drop ship to a store.
3: And, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to say, Tim Shear is a genius. He is. So
2: I'm just going to say it. <laughs> he is. He. He's. He, I tell you what. He. There's a. I know a lot of guys in the industry. I've never met anyone like Tim Shear, who's a optimistic about literally everything and, and not scared to, to take on something because there's, there's a lot of people who just, it's, he's not afraid to jump. just put it that way. And if he thinks that there's something that's going to be successful or something that's going to be a real tool, that's going to benefit people, he's going to do it. And that's what happens is, is, you know, sometimes you walk into like these barbecue specialty stores and 50% of the products that are in that store, you'll never use. Somebody may go in there and buy it for you for Father's Day or you know it's one of those gifts that you get and you're like oh great another's high it was in the know. garage exactly you shelf. know and it's those things that go on the on the hook in the in the garage and uh-huh. it never moves right. and everything that Tim has ever made developed anything like that it's 100% useful and that's kind of one of the deals for us is when I walk into a new dealer and they go oh well tell me tell me the product that I shouldn't get and I'm like well there, there's really not one there's some seasonings that do better in some regional areas than others. But to be real honest, like for us now here in Texas, we have the ability to cook Texas style, KCBS style. It, we have literal contests now that you can go on one side of the street, they're cooking Texas style. The other side of the street, they're cooking KCBS styles and they're looking for those flavor profiles. So they fit, you know, but the good thing is, is all of our flavor profiles will fall into either category category now because a lot of people have adapted kcbs to bring into the texas barbecue so they're kind of melded into each other now the big difference for us between cooking texas and kcbs or any other sanctioning body is pork butt they don't do texas ibca doesn't do pork butt they used to but there's a new organization that just started called cba champions barbecue association or alliance rather and what they did was, is they brought in like all the best parts of Texas barbecue, plus the KCBS styles into one event. Because what, what happens for what's happened for a long, long time is if you do extremely well in, in uh, Texas barbecue and you, you achieve everything that you can possibly achieve and you get an opportunity to go cook the Jack or the American Royal or any of these other deals, if you don't know how to cook a pork butt you may cook everything else perfect and the pork butt will kill you. And so IBCA stood on for a long time that they didn't want to have that in there as an extra category, but it did a lot of the cooks a disservice because it was not preparing them for the opportunity to get out and go cook outside of Texas. And uh, what's happened over the last probably, I'm going to say, I'm going to dare say five years is you're starting to see more and more competitive cooks in Texas who cook outside of Texas like 50% of the time now, because people understand you can be a, a hero in Texas. You can be the best cook in Texas, but if you don't ever leave Texas, nobody outside of Texas knows who you are. So there's no opportunity to become that Myron Mixon or to become that Mo Kason, or to become that Chris Lilly or Tuffy Stone or anything like that. There's been very few guys in Texas who have that type of, recognition. Now, there are some guys like Ernest Cervantes. You have Fred Robles, who Fred Robles happened to be, he, he won the American Royal in 19. That's a guy who got out of his comfort zone and cooked every state. He, he's actually physically said, I want to cook in every state in the United States, just so I understand how it is. But he's a winner. He's he's done extremely well. He's, he's won World Food Championships. He's won I, I don't even know. I mean, he's been recognized at every major event out there. But for me, I'm Hispanic, so I'm proud. He is, he, he's the first Hispanic to ever win the American role, which is a big thing for us. But it kind of set the standard as well. There's so many Texas cooks now go, ah, oh, if he can do it, I can do it. So you're starting to see more and more Texas cooks get out there, get out of their comfort zone. It's It's crazy now that you go to, a lot of these newer cooks, bigger events now. And I mean, there's in every spot that you see, I mean, there's $100,000 sitting there. There's an RV, there's a big trailer, there's all this other stuff for people to go and chase plastic trophies and ribbons at these events. There's very, very few people who can make a living out of competitive barbecue. There are guys who do it. There's very, very few guys who can do that. You got to work extremely hard at all your other jobs in order to pay for this, this is a very, very expensive hobby.
4: But yeah, there, I got, I got to get Len out of his comfort zone. I got to get him off Long Island.
2: There you go. Come on. <laughs> I tell you what, it's when we were when we were in New York, we had a, a couple of different places that we were going to go and, and eat while we we're there. James Cruz is he's like phenomenal at, at lining up like. Like all these different restaurants, and you know people to go see and everything else, and and now I, I feel terrible because I can't remember what the name of the place was now. But there is a a, a kosher barbecue. Oh yes, I know. I know who you're talking about. Uh, it's and uh, he's going to kill me because I can't remember his name right now. But anyways, so
4: well, I know that one in Chicago called Milts. Oh, th- Milt's this barbecue w- for the perplexed. Brian yes, is, but in, this is in New York. I know. Yeah, oh, in and New York. I, I, I can't mean, remember the name of it. It is. So. It is Fing-
2: Izzy's. Izzy's.
3: Yes, Izzy's. yes. Izzy's. Yeah. He won a, he won a rib competition.
2: Yes. At, making beef ribs at pig beach. James tells me, he goes, Hey man, he goes, we're, we're going to go eat barbecue. And I'm, I'm always like, ah, you know, barbecue. So anyways, so we go and he goes, yeah, we're going to meet this guy. And, you know, and I'd heard about it, never really did anything. You know, I, I go to like blue smoke and, you know, I go see Billy Durney and, Mm -hmm. You know, when I go to New York, I got my spots and I go hit and um, I actually had never been. So we go over there. My expectations were not super high. We walk in there and of course, it's very Hasidic there, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's not what I would expect at all from that neighborhood. And I was trying to figure out, I was like, how were all these people eating barbecue? I I just just didn't (laughs) think that happened. And so he kind of explained all the process and, you know, how he made it happen. And so he he brings this, Izzy actually brings his platter and he sets it down. And it's like the most beautiful barbecue platter I've ever seen. And I literally, I probably take two, 300 pictures of barbecue platters like a year. I mean, I've seen them all. And this one is, I swear to you, was the most beautiful one that I've ever seen. And every single cut of meat every, his, his coleslaw, his pickles, everything on that plate was amazing. I don't think I've had better barbecue to be very honest, my best barbecue. And I'll tell you right now, there's a place in, in Austin, Texas, in Manchac, Texas, actually it's called Valentina's. He, to me is, that is like my favorite barbecue. He's a good friend, Miguel, but that is like my favorite, favorite barbecue. I'll tell everybody that, but I tell you, this barbecue is just It was so phenomenal. If anybody has not been there, they need to go. Doesn't matter what it costs, doesn't matter how long you got to wait, got to eat at that spot. Izzy also next door owns a coffee shop or a coffee and pastry shop, which is also amazing. I think I, I bought like, James and I bought like, I don't know, like $50, $60 worth of pastries, and I ate every single one of them. Oh, I mean, wow. it was it, it was ridiculous <laughs> over a course of two days. I ate everything. Usually, I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. Every time that I go to to New York, it's it, Italian food is like my number one thing. That's what I want to go have every single time I go. But like I said, this was probably my best food experience I've ever had. In New York was there at Izzy's
3: in New York. Fifty, sixty dollars for pastry. Maybe you buy two.
2: <laughs> no, it wasn't. That <laughs> you know, the bad. prices are. It was, it was it, honestly, we, I think we got two, we got like two boxes because wow. we had to, uh, we, we were there that particular day that we were there. We actually had to go back to Jersey to go and cook. There's a guy there that it's called Brothers Barbecue, and they actually had a pit coming up from Texas that we were going to cook on because, oh, wow. of course, with all the craziness going on, we couldn't have a pit on site that we could, we couldn't cook there at Pig Beach. So we ha- literally had to find a kitchen and everything else way off site. Cooked over there, cooked all night long, and then I, I think that we got to the event like an hour before everything started to kind of get it all cranked up again. So um, you're
3: cooking on an unknown pit. You've never cooked yes. on this pit, and that, and that's a bit, wow. We
2: were we were the very first ones. So there's a guy who's actually from where I live right now. I'm in a small town outside of San Antonio, Texas. There's another town that's called Luling, Texas, which is kind of like one of the barbecue capitals of Texas. You know, it's been around a long time, old oil field company or or town rather. So there's a guy there that started building pits like two years ago. They're Syntex. The guy's name is uh, Michael Johnson. Great guy. Somebody took to him the idea because they knew he's been in the oil field building pipe and all kinds of stuff for years and years. Somebody went to them and said, hey, you know, can you build me a barbecue pit? he's like, yeah, I pretty much build anything. He's a welder, can do anything they want. So a guy brought him this idea. He goes, this is how I want this pit. And he explained all these details to him. It wound up the guy built the pit. The guy came and picked up the pit, took it home, cooked on it. And it's a thousand gallon pit. So it's like it's like 20 feet long. You, know, you put 40, 50 briskets on it at one time, whatever. And so the guy goes, takes it home, cooks on it, comes back and goes, you know what? that pit cooks amazing from the inch number one on this side to inch number 4,000 on this side. So he, he literally like the very first one that he built in the, in the, uh, for this craft barbecue, he built like perfectly. So he built a reputation for himself very, very, in a very short time where you have a lot of other guys, pit builders who've been doing it for 10 years, you know, who finally got down here, you have guys who are on like, two, three year waiting lists to have one of these $20,000 pits built and stuff like that. So anyways, this guy got a little, he got a little footing in there. He happened to build uh, this particular guy in Houston, his pit, Ronnie Killen. At that time, Mo Kason was spending time with Ronnie. Mo sees his pit and he goes, oh man, I love that pit. I want a pit like that. Mo ordered one from Michael, which was his second pit that he built. And it turned out phenomenal. And then he built this other pit. This happened to be the one that got sent up to these guys, two brothers. So it showed up. We beat the pit there. I think we were an hour before the pit got there. And as soon as the pit got there, I actually had taken up like half a quarter wood from Texas because I we want to cook on the wood that we cook on down here. And so sure enough, I got up there, fired up the pit, kind of Usually you want to let it burn for hours and cure it and oil it and all. Well, we didn't. We burned it for an hour and we threw meat in it. We literally had no time to really mess with it that much. It cooked perfectly, uh, did exactly what we needed it to do. And it's just a testament of being a, a barbecue cook. One of the biggest things is is the ability to adapt to whatever you're going to cook on and figure it out in a pretty short period of time. So that's been one of the nice things is I literally have, I don't know, 20, I've probably got 20 pits here at my house from every extremity that you can imagine. So, I mean, I've had the pleasure of cooking on every single type of pit out there. And for me to just look at something, and go, okay, yeah, well, this is how we're going to do it. We can pretty much do that. It just so happened that, like I said, I had a relationship with this guy, told him we we're going to New York, needed a pit to cook on. He's like, yeah, no problem. Usually I would, if I'd go up there, I'd borrow one from Billy Durney or somebody like that. So anyways, it it just, it all worked out. Luckily, like I said, it's having great equipment, having great wood, having great proteins to cook. That's what makes barbecue successful. And like I said, is, is the understanding of barbecue for me is being able to do something for someone. My thing is, is I just want to see the smile on somebody's face at the end of the day. So if I can make you happy with whatever I cooked you that's all that's that's all I need out of the deal. I'm not about chasing awards and chasing trophies and stuff like that. I'm I'm like way past that stage. That that's all we're interested in now is is right. making people happy.
4: Well that's what it's all about. Yeah. What?
3: And you actually uh, Joey not only do you make people happy, but you're living your you have a quote on your Facebook page that I love doing what I love because I love what I do. Yep. And I think that, I think that says
4: it all. Yep. Uh, Joe, you, you spoke about your social media. Could you tell us where people can contact you? What uh, social media you have out there, any sure. websites, anything you want to promote, please.
2: Floor yeah, to. So I'm pretty simple. I have a, my original competition name was Guadalupe barbecue company. So I have a page is Guadalupe barbecue company. I have a page is just under Joey Machado. I discovered TikTok over this little hiatus that we've had, and I fell in love with TikTok. So I've done a lot of stuff on there. I've got a page, it's called Texas Fire. That app has introduced me to so many new people that I never knew in barbecue. So many talented people who just got on there and, and just like I did, just We're trying to kill time and started doing recipes and all kinds of stuff. So anyone who doesn't have it, I would suggest, you know, take a look at it. If you look for barbecue stuff, you're going to find barbecue stuff. If you want to find silly cats, you're going to find silly cats. There's a lot of cool people out there. We do the same thing as far as um, Twitter. and, And then, of course, we're associated to another piece of our companies. It's called The Barbecue League. So the barbecue league we actually we have a website, we have Facebook, we have, you know, you name it, we have everything. The website that we have, it's actually a paid subscription service. So what we've done is because of all my relationships in in barbecue across the world, we've actually gone and spent time with all these great pitmasters and we've gotten recipes and we've gotten, you know, how-tos and we've got everything. I've even got Tim putting out all everything that you need to know about how he cooks. And he is actually one of the most simple cooks in the world. What um, a genius. Yes.
3: Let's not leave and that out.
2: A, exactly. And so we have this thing. It's called Barbecue League. You can go on there and you can actually just, you can look for recipes that you're looking for. Um, you can become a member and have access to every single thing. When we go to big events like Memphis and May and the Royal and stuff like that, we actually will have the league lounges. So if you're a member of our subscription group, you can come hang out with us, hang out with all of our all of our cooks. We introduce you to everybody who's you know part of our group. And if, of course, we'll do one-on-ones with anybody. If we're in an event like that and you want to come help us or you want to do anything like that, you just come on board, come hang out with us. But that's, um, that's kind of our, our main deal. You know, we're, we're very, very focused on what we do, but we understand that we can't do it if we don't have the people who love barbecue. And so that's what we do it for at the end of the day is the people who love barbecue.
3: We love barbecue. And Joey, I think that this interview, we've loved this interview. This is really, really, you've
4: been fantastic.
2: Well, I appreciate it. Sometimes it's hard for me to shut up. (laughs)
4: <laughs> no that's, that's what that's my problem with land but no be, we that. great. <laughs>
2: that's, well we need to uh we need to figure out a time when i can get back to new york i'd love Absolutely. to come up and cook with y'all that and, would be uh,
3: fantastic yeah, that'd, yeah. Be that'd be
2: great i'll cook for you one day but then we have to go eat all the rest of the days you got it and we have a pretty
4: good, uh, a couple pretty good restaurant barbecue restaurants sit here as well. So uh, we don't necessarily
2: have to go eat barbecue. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> we've got very good Italian. Yeah, that's it. Now you're talking right? my language.
3: Yeah, we we definitely do. Might have, have to go to
2: Lombardies. I got to go to Lombardies every time I go.
3: Ah, uh, and yeah, and and we could also we could go to Katz's.
2: Yes, and I love Katz's. Yeah.
3: Right, With you know, Meathead uh, says that Katz's is the. Uh, what does he say? It's the longest running oh, no, uh, barbecue. barbecue place. Yeah. Exactly.
2: Because I love the pastrami. <laughs> yeah. And that's the deal is if you go to Izzy's, you got to have his pastrami.
4: Oh, yeah. 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 Well, Joey, Joey hey, we'll, we'll let thank, you, you. thank you very much. Thank and uh, we will speak to you again.
2: Thank you so much.
4: And we want to thank Joey for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. He, is, he represents Blue, Blue Dog and the Gateway Drum Smokers again. So check them out. Thank you, Joey. And all I'm going to say
3: is Tim Shear is a genius. <laughs> yeah, you've said that before. <laughs> yes. All right. So, Jeff. Yes, sir. We are now in between episodes. Yes. Is there something you want to ask me? What did you do at, at Yankee Stadium? Did I go to Yankee Stadium?
0: I did. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Jeff, I had the opportunity to go to Yankee Stadium for a special day. Hartford Insurance had us at the at the stadium as their guests. It was very nice. It was a great day. Started, I think, uh, ten thirty, and we're all sitting there. We're in the Ford Dining Hall or uh, Ford sponsored by F- Ford, and we're sitting there and we're at tables. And all of a sudden, there's a familiar voice, none other than Paul Olden, and he introduces. Tino Martinez and Mariano Rivera. And in they come. And there was a question and answer session with them and then autographs. And Jeff, when we were lined up for autographs, I'm thinking to myself, they gave us two baseballs. And I said, do I just get these autographed and keep my mouth shut and walk on? Or do I, I guess what what, would be the... I don't even know, you know, just aggressive and just ask them to be on the show. And then people in front of me are asking them questions and stuff. So I said, you know what? What do I have to lose? So I get Tino Martinez and I start talking to him and asking him if he ever does podcasts and would he like to come on the show? And we'll see what happens. But I mentioned baseball and barbecue and then. I said to Mariano Rivera, the great Mariano Rivera, I asked him if he ever did podcasts and they said occasionally, and I asked him as well. Then we move on and there was a photo session where they stand there and you stand in between them and I walked over and I stood between them and they said, hey, barbecue guy. So now I'm barbecue guy. Later on, we had a session in in the batting cage and Tino Martinez is there and he's giving instructions. Jeff, it's been years since I swung a bat, years. Tino Martinez is there. And I afterwards said to him, that's why I talk about baseball and I don't play it. And then later I had a catch with Mariano Rivera in the visitor's bullpen. I was actually having a catch with Mariano. And, you know, I said to him, I said, Mariano. I could I can make a good brisket. <laughs> he walked over and he said, you are OK, you know, throwing the baseball, which I was not. I said, pulled pork, ribs, brisket. I can make that much better than I could throw a ball. And he said, that sounds really good. In the meantime, we are still waiting for them to come on. Yeah. And I think we'll be waiting and waiting. But there is one more thing to the story. And then I'm going to mention the other thing. Paul Olden. And for those of you who listen to the fan and have heard updates, and I believe he's also the public address announcer at Yankee Stadium. I heard that voice and it was just so distinctive. But those and of you don't know, the fan is WFAN Radio in New York. Sorry. Yeah, that, I, I shouldn't assume that everybody knows that, right? And I mentioned it. We had just spoken the night before to Tim Neverett, who we're going to have next. And Paul Olden says to me, oh, Tim's a friend of mine. And it was just, we start talking about that. And hopefully we will be having Paul Olden on the show as well. So uh, it was an exciting day, Jeff. It really was. And we're going to get into that interview. But before we do, let us mention a few of our very good friends of the show. Baseballbbq.com for incredible grilling tools and accessories. The Pandemic baseball. Book Club, which many of the authors that we have on this show are from. Go to their website and you can buy their books, buy some swag, and of course, fifthandcherry.com for cutting boards that you will just, their works of art. And with that, Jeff,
4: jump in because I've done a lot of talk. (laughs) Here's Tim Neverett with COVID Curveball, the story of the 2020. Los Angeles Dodgers. Baseball in 2020, what a weird, wacky 60-game season. From COVID rules, some of which will be permanently implemented, to COVID outbreaks on the Marlins and Cardinals, social unrest causing games to be postponed to expanded playoffs. COVID really threw a curveball to the 2020 baseball season. And what an appropriate name for a new book. COVID Curveball, an inside view of the 2020 Los Angeles Dodgers World Championship season by our guest, Tim Neverett. Tim is a veteran sports play-by-play announcer and reporter. He has covered the Boston Red Sox, Pittsburgh Pirates, along with college football, basketball, hockey, and the Olympics. Today, he does play-by-play and pre- and post-game hosting duties for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He is with us to talk about this fascinating new look into the 2020 Dodgers season. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, Tim Neverett.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
4: We appreciate you coming on. So, Tim, first I want to say I've always wanted to go to spring training for my favorite team, the Mets. Never got the chance. However, my son attends Arizona State University. So I did go out to see him in February 2020 and took in several spring training sites. And I have to say the Dodgers facility at Camelback Ranch is just, as Larry David would say, pretty, pretty, pretty good. (laughs) I know they share it with the White Sox, but it's a terrific facility.
1: Yeah, it is. It's one of the better ones, for sure. I think it's right up there with Diamondbacks and Rockies over in Scottsdale. They're at Talking Stick. They've got pretty good facility, too. But certainly, Camelback Ranch has everything. It was custom-designed. You know, The White Sox got their side of it, and they designed it the way they wanted it. The Dodgers got their side of it, designed it the way they wanted it. A river, man-made river separates the two, and it's just a, a beautiful thing. And brought some things from Vero Beach. There are some grapefruit trees. That they brought from Florida that, that grow right outside the Dodger Clubhouse. So they've got some really neat touches there. And we didn't get to go this year in 2021. We mm-hmm. were, you know, the broadcasters did not get to go to spring training. I missed it terribly. And I'm hoping we get to go next year because that was the first time I had never not gone to spring
4: training. Right, right. So, what was your motivation writing the 2020 season? Obviously, you didn't know when you were writing it that the Dodgers would win the World Series, but you knew they were a loaded team.
1: Knew they were good. Had no idea they'd win the World Series. In fact, I had no idea we'd even play a season at one point. And so, after things were shut down, and I went back home, my wife and I decided to go to the White Mountains of New Hampshire, and we got a cabin up there, and we just, uh, you know, basically spent time away from humanity for for about a month and a half uh, while we were quarantining. While up there, just kind of decided that it would be a good idea to write something, just journal something. I never really set out and had the intention of saying, yeah, we're going to write a book on the world series winning season, you know, because the season hadn't started. We didn't know what the rules were going to be. How many games? I just, I I just thought because my schedule was up in the air at that point, because typically I do a a lot of the games on radio, a good portion of the games on television and a handful of times I'll, I'll anchor from the studio. So I I have a pretty busy season. I didn't know if I'd have any season, but I said, you know, I'm just going to, uh, figure this out as we go and just kind of write every day and journaled it and as we went along I wrote it in real time so I did it every day I caught up from the first part of spring training to quarantine while in quarantine because frankly there wasn't a lot to do so I went after my memory banks and uh, and wrote some stuff down and then from there I did every day and came up with COVID curveball and, and you know there's a lot of different stories that are in there that are relevant to baseball but you know it's kind of offshoots of what we were talking about at the time that day I tried to tie in some of my own stories and it's just a different view of of how you know the Dodgers went about their business and trying to stay healthy enough to win a world series and how we had to stay healthy enough and and totally adjust how we broadcast games it was just totally weird it's kind of the bizarre world of baseball last year mm-hmm. and uh, some of it is normal this year. And for us, for, as broadcasters, it's still not, not at all. So we're hopeful that 2022 will finally be able to get back to what we've been accustomed to for the last several decades in, in baseball.
3: The book is COVID Curveball An Inside View of the 2020 Los Angeles Dodgers World Championship Season. We are talking to Tim Neverett, and I am trying to use as best, a broadcasting voice as I can, because I have to say, Jeff, we don't often have someone on with pipes like Tim <laughs> Everett. You know, we have to like kind of go a little deeper as we talk. And Tim, this is the part of the show where I where I fawn a little bit. This book is fantastic. The way you write it as as the journal and and we get to live every day and it's it's not just what happened in the game it's the little nuances you write what's going on around you talk about covid testing and you know when when this whole season was happening i was basically working from home at my dining room table <laughs> and this was, you know, the, this was the season, and and it's just so fascinating to to read about it from someone who, you, you know, lived it in that way. You you you're living in a you lived in a twenty second story of a of a hotel in Los Angeles. You went to an empty stadium to broadcast games when because you didn't travel with the team. The, the, it's just fantastic. But now I got to ask you a question, right? This is the part where I have to ask you a question. So. Right you write about i there's just so many things in here you write about emerson college for instance so you are uh, an emerson college alumni i am and what's great is you give back to the school you teach at the school and i know it doesn't have a lot to do with the book but tell us a little bit about that and 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 your class that you give at emerson well
1: yeah in fact uh, a couple of nights ago i was Fine tuning my syllabus. (laughs) So, uh, and I still have some more work to do before we begin the next semester. So, it's going to be a pretty busy Tuesday for me. At the same time, I've been teaching some different courses, one in sports advocacy, one in sports public relations. And the school asked me last semester, they said, if you could design a course for our sports communications major, what would you do? And I said, well, that's easy. I said, upper level students, 400 level or better and it would be sports broadcasting and all the nuances that go into it that no one ever thinks about. And I said, well, you know, when I went to Emerson, we never had anything like this. I looked around their course, you know, the courses, there's nothing like it anywhere. And basically they're going to learn how to do, do do games. They're going to learn how to do talk shows. They're going to learn how to do interviews. They're going to learn how to do radio, pregame, postgame, TV, pregame, postgame. They're going to learn all the things that go into it, including the preparation. They're going to learn more about preparation than they will performance. But believe me, when they leave the class, they're going to have a clue on what it takes to, to be a sports broadcaster and, and uh, what they need to do. So that's what uh, I'm going to do this semester and looking forward to doing that class. And, and the students are very good. They're very smart students there. They're very uh, very active students there. So what I've found is that teaching students at the college level it's it's better, because, especially the upper level ones, because you can treat them like adults. You can tell them how it is, and then they can take it. So that's kind of the the best part of it is uh, you know the rewarding thing is later on when they get back to you and they say, hey, I got this internship or I got this job. I didn't know think you were right, but actually, you know what, you were right. So that that's what you want to hear, and I really enjoy sharing the knowledge and giving back the, the way that I do because. Uh, it's a unique opportunity. So I, I didn't want to turn down the opportunity and and I really enjoy doing it. I like the interaction with the students. And they, you know, the school wants me to do it remotely. I'll do it from Los Angeles uh, the way we're talking now. For a little bit, I'll go back to Boston for about two months, do it in person there. And then so and they want me to take if I have a game somewhere, they want me to take the students with me, basically, through my iPad, essentially. And I've taught the course from the Sportsnet LA Studios. I've taught the course from Dodger Stadium, giving them the tour. I've done it from a broadcast booth there. we you know, and, I'm planning on doing some other things this year, and taking them a lot of different places, uh, not only around Boston but around the country.
4: Sounds cool. How do I take that course?
1: <laughs> you got to pay a lot of money. Yeah, I'm
4: sure. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to baseball, uh, when you're waiting for the season to begin, you know, you had March, and then you, the season begins in, in late July. You had all that time. Really do nothing but except for writing the book. <laughs> but did you when the negotiations were going on between MLB and and the Players Association? Did you have any inside knowledge? Did they tell you anything what was going on?
1: I got everything off of here, uh-huh. off of off of my phone, and it was. I became a a, a Twitter holic, I guess, because I'd get up in the morning, I'd be scrolling, I I just scroll for news, scroll for news. If we got a little bit of news, I'd get it from there because the reporters, the national reporters had it before anybody. There were a couple of times I got a phone call from the team. There was a couple of times we had uh, some Zoom meetings with the broadcasters where I would get some inside information on what they were looking at or what the possibilities were. But for the most part, I was getting the word at the same time. Pretty much everybody else was.
3: Tim, you know, I as, as I'm reading this book and, and learning about you, I think the reader will relate to you more. And I say that because... You've really paid your dues. You, you know, you started broadcasting at a young age, but you, you started, you did AAA games for like ten years, and it doesn't appear that you've ever had anything handed to you. I think Jeff and I are trying to do things with this podcast that we wanted to do, and now we work regular jobs and we have this. But so I, I admire everything that you've done, and Thank it's you. just you, you're welcome. And and as you read this, you really you feel that, you know, this is someone that really, even, even while this COVID season was happening and you were talking about, Oh, I guess I'm not broadcasting this game or, Oh, I thought I was going to broadcast. I guess I'm sitting this one out. Or at the end, they sent me home. I, ca- I almost felt bad. Like God, Tim's not going to do the the playoffs in the series.
1: Yeah. You know, I I watched it on the couch, just like everybody else. Yeah. And uh, that's just the way 2021 was, and. You know, initially they told me I was going to do every game all the way through the World Series, and then that changed. And you know, I, I'm in a position there where I just have to kind of roll with the punches. And I'm—I was lucky just to, you know, there were a lot of people in my position that weren't employed last year, and there were a lot of major league broadcasters who worked for the television flagship or the radio flagship that weren't employed, that got cut. And while we remained employed, I, I thanked the Dodgers for that. And I, you know. I was just in a position where, okay, whatever you want me to do. So they said, all right, look, we want you to do a segment on the pregame, segment on the postgame every day. We want you involved. We want, you know, we, we understand this is a one-off season and you know, we're looking for you to be back next year in the, in the more expanded role that, that we've got designed for you, which I am, which is great. I'm I'm having a good time with it. But yeah, it was difficult because I didn't I didn't know for sure until the very last day of the season that I wasn't going to go to Arlington In fact, the day before I was told by somebody else in the front office that I was going to Arlington and going to be in the bubble. And then the 24 hours later, I got called into my boss's office expecting to be told I was going to Arlington. And they told me, go, you can go home if you want. I went, what? (laughs) So, uh, okay. That's, that's what you want me to do. I'll go home and watch TV, I guess, which is what I did.
3: Tim, you have a section in the book. That's pretty moving talks about the passing of your father and baseball must have been a big part of your lives because you had a ball and you also, you got this new ball and you have it autographed, but well, you all signed it and you put it in the casket with your dad, we just had the field of dreams game and we had some people on that were at the game. And you know, part of that movie that the core, or one of the themes of that movie is the catch with the father. Can you tell us about uh, your remembrance uh, of, a, you know, catching, having catches with your dad?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was from as early as I can remember. You know, my brother, my older brother is uh, six years older than me, so he was always playing. He, he had a head start on me, so I, you know, as a youngster, I was always going to his games, sitting with my dad. And, you know, when I started playing in Little League, my brother was in, you know, like Babe Ruth or high school baseball. And we I, were constantly going to games. My dad went to so many games at the local stadium that they actually retired his seat and they retired a seat next to him for my mother. So they have plaques with their names on them and they gave our family the tickets for those seats, you know, like forever. So nobody else can ever sit there because he was just one of those guys that was always, you know, he was always at the ballpark. My brother coached at the high school level for 30 years. And then he coached uh, the college wood bat league for another bunch of years. And my dad was at every game and, he was at all of my games, and it was not unusual for me to be at a practice, say in little league or in junior high or in high school, and turn around and see my dad at practice or see his car parked up on the hill, knowing that he took off from work just to come over and just catch a little bit of the practice or a game or scrimmage or something. He was he loved baseball, and, and then uh, there were times when we first got cable television. It was great because. Major League Baseball was totally unregulated at that, at that point. And I was the human remote control. We didn't have a remote. We had a little slider, <laughs> right, on top of the TV. So uh, we'd be watching the Red Sox. They'd go to commercial. you go, check uh, PIX for the Yankees. Okay. Check OR for the Mets. All right. Well, let's see what the Expos are doing. So I'd go up to Canal Tres and I'd hear, uh, you know, Paul Pris, oh, Warren Cromartie. Whatever. So we'd watch the Expos in French. And then we'd go watch the Braves. and we'd go watch the Cubs. And it was like back and forth all night long watching baseball in every possible game we could get, which came with our cable package. And uh, we loved it. I did it all the time. I didn't mind getting a change of channels. I especially got uh, really interested in all the National League games because I grew up in American League territory. And since 1973, we had the DH but I loved watching the the game with the pitcher in the lineup and the double switches and the different strategies. And, you know, the game that would dictate when the pitcher would come out when his arms tired. So, and then when I went and played American Legion, that's what we played. We played national league rules. We went from seven inning games to nine inning games. We had, we had no DH and loved it. Anyway, we played other sports. We did other things, but it always came back to baseball in my family, especially with my dad and my mom too. She loved it. She watched baseball every night. When I got the Red Sox job and came home, well, when I got the Pirates job, I got them the MLB package so they could watch our games, and they did. When I came home for the Red Sox, uh, they would watch the game and turn the sound down, turn the radio up and listen to me. You know, it was kind of a a big deal. It was a real big deal for them, and I, I really appreciated everything they did for me.
4: Tim, we're spoiled in New York. We have Gary Cohen. Of ron darling keith Hernandez, and we kind of know where they live they live in connecticut or keith out in sag Harbor. they would come to the stadium during the, during 2020 and do the broadcast from the stadium from the booth you stayed in the hotel but one of your broadcast partners had an unusual abode for the season <laughs> rick monday could you tell us about that that was a great tidbit in the book by the way that's was, that was fantastic
1: yeah that was our best kept secret because we were not allowed to say where he was. And he actually stayed there the first half of this year until we started allowing a full stadium of fans. He, th- he tried that for a little while and people were wondering what this RV was doing in the parking lot. And why was, why was Rick Monday hanging around this RV? So yeah, he lived in an RV. He borrowed from a friend who had it in storage doing nothing. He parked it in Wadi at Dodger stadium and there are trees around it. It's a little sliver of a lot. There are trees around it. The perfect campground kind of lot and the Dodgers were like yeah bring it on so they they ran water lines to him they ran electric electricity to him they ran internet to him anything that he needed they ran it right through the side gate right up to the side of the RV and he had a car so if he had to go anywhere he'd use the car there were nights when uh, again there's nobody at the stadium right so if we had a two hour 30 minute game he'd go I got a couple of Corona's, uh, out there. You want to come down? Yeah, absolutely. It was just down the stairs from where I'd park. So we'd hang out. I used to call it Moe's bar and grill. We'd hang out at Moe's bar and grill. He had a TV on the outside, you had a, like a fake fireplace inside. This thing was tricked out, but we kept it as a secret for about, you know, really a year and a half. And when the Dodgers went over the manuscript, they only came back with one problem that they had. And I said, well, what's that? They said, We don't want you telling anybody where Rick lives. I said, he's leaving. The people need the RV back. By the time anybody finds out or anybody reads this book, he's going to be long gone out of there. So they're like, are you sure? I said, I've talked to him five times about it. He said, yes, put it in the book. They came, they got the RV. He now goes back to where he normally was living in LA for many years. And it was kind of a neat deal because people would ask us, well, who's in that RV? You know, we'd have to go like, I don't know, somebody's in there. But there were all kinds of things. Coyotes would come up to his door. Raccoons would come up to his door. The sprinkler would go off at 4.30 in the morning and hit the side of the RV and wake him up. I mean, he, he really uh, he kind of roughed it, I guess. But that's uh, that's kind of a, a funny thing and an endearing thing about him. He loved being out there and living in the parking lot at Dodger Stadium.
4: Talk about a short commute to work.
1: <laughs> literally literally up, up a set of stairs and through a gate. And he's there.
4: Can you describe what you're broadcasting? You were broadcasting in an unusual place in in Dodger Stadium, a a luxury suite. It's a different setup from your broadcast booth. So how did you get used to that?
1: You just do, I guess. I mean, we go to so many places over the course of your career. I mean, I did a game one time from the top of a school bus, so this was not bad compared to that. But (laughs) we are in a luxury suite. That sounds really nice, but you have to broadcast from there. I had the front row. Uh, Whether I was broadcasting or not, I was there every night in the front row and they were home. And I had a plastic Pelican case. If you're familiar with like an equipment case, it's made by a company called Pelican. It's just plastic. That was in the seat next to me. And that's where I had a lot of my paperwork. So it was like a makeshift desk. And then we had a little tiny bar top that was only about this thick. And we put a TV monitor on that. I had uh, like an iPad on there. And... That's how I watch the games. I mean, I, I, I just basically nestled into this little area. And there's a picture of it in the book, kind of where I'm sitting in front of this glass in front of me. Rick is three rows behind me at a bar table, with a, like a little living room lamp next to him. And so he's back there. And our producer, Dwayne McDonald, is sitting back in the, back in, in the suite. We're all very socially distanced. And then when we did television, because of all the cabling and the lighting grid and everything else, they couldn't really move us out of the TV booth. So uh, when I was in there with uh, Oral Hershiser, uh we made sure that we sat five feet 11 inches apart, exactly 5'11. I don't know what we sat apart, but it probably wasn't six feet, but we really couldn't move out of the booth and uh, we did the best we could.
3: Tim, the whole time that you were this whole season, did you never go home?
1: No, no, I stayed at the Weston Bonaventure. Normally I have an apartment, but because we had such a short, Season, I never booked one, so I never rented one. So mm-hmm. I ended up staying in a suite at the hotel. uh I knew the manager there, and he upgraded. I told him what I was doing, and he goes, "Yeah, we'll give you an upgrade." So I had a nice, you know, a nice setup. It wasn't bad. Except when the earthquake hit that one day, and the tower started started swaying like this. And I was like, "Oh my goodness!" I've done yeah, earthquakes was- before, but not from the twenty second floor. <laughs> uh, it was a little bit a little bit unnerving. Yeah, so I was there. whole time and that was that and then when i it was time to go home i just packed it up and got on the plane
3: who foots the bill for the whole for a hotel for all that time is that on you
1: uh well fortunately part of my deal uh was that they were gonna pay for my housing for two years they kind of got off easy because it was not the whole season so but it still counts. So
0: <laughs>
1: so anyway, yeah, so I didn't have to do that. But I have an apartment that I lease in downtown L.A. And uh, I'm actually going to be uh, probably moving in there more on a full-time basis in uh, the winter.
0: Nice.
4: Let's get into the season. The Dodgers are full of superstars. Clayton Kershaw, Cody Bellinger, Justin Mookie Turner. Betts. Who still haunts the Mets. And, of course, Mookie Betts. And they <laughs> all came together in 2020. But it's not just yeah. not as a team. But going above and beyond, keeping safe during the COVID and protocols, could you describe what what they actually did? Because I I know, well, the Cardinals and Marlins weren't exactly safe, but but the Dodgers really went above and beyond.
1: They did. And, you know, the guy behind it was Justin Turner. And, you know, he went to the manager, Dave Roberts, and said, you know, Major League Baseball's protocols are good, but we think we have a chance to win. And in order to win, we have to stay healthy. We can't miss games. We can't have guys missing games. So – Above, over and above, like if you were – what they did was the offensive coaches, like the hitting coaches, if the team was in the field, they had to leave the dugout. So they would have fewer people in the dugout. If, uh, you know, your base coaches, uh, they're out there, but, you know, you got infield, outfield, so they're defensive coaches. So they're in the dugout, when the team's at bat too, but they had uh, pitchers sitting well outside the dugout, guys who weren't pitching that night. They had a, a whole other area where, where people could spread out and sit in the stands. And so they really spread out in the dugout. They stopped, you know, doing handshakes. They wanted to wear masks more often. I mean, nobody really wanted to wear masks more often, but they did because they felt they had to. But Justin Turner was really the ringleader on this. And that's why and I had this conversation with him the other day, you know, when I, I hand delivered him the book and uh, I said, you know, you're in here a couple of times, times, so you may want to know. But I said, it was ironic. I found it ironic that he was the COVID cop. Yet he was the guy who got the positive test, right? He was completely asymptomatic. He never felt sick, never felt a sniffle, but somehow he had a positive test during game six of the world series. And as I wrote in the book and I still maintain the most 2020 thing about 2020 was that Blake Snell pitching for the Rays was dominating. And due to analytics and team philosophy, he didn't last as long as a game as a guy with COVID-19. Right. So th- that, to me, was the most 2020 thing about the entire season.
4: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that uh, with uh, Blake Snell coming out. I think Mookie was just, he loved that when he came out. He, he oh, just, uh, like, yeah. oh, I mean, how could, you know, that, that's going to really go with Kevin Cash for, for the rest of his uh, managerial career, taking him out. It I will. mean, the guy was cruising. cruising. Will, but that
1: that's an organizational philosophy in Tampa Bay. It got him to game six to the World Series. So it works to a point. However, this is still baseball, still a game played by human beings, and there's still the eye test. Right. And a manager still has to have a gut. As soon as he took him out, six pitches later, the Dodgers had the lead in the World Series in half. Six pitches later, it was over. Right. And Mookie expressed it right after the game. He's like, I I thought, he said, he thought to himself, Okay, take him out. This is great. Everybody else in that dugout thought the same thing because some pitchers have nights. Blake snow was having a night. Yeah, he really was, and it was, it was. I'm watching this, going, I cannot believe this. I cannot believe this, but I can believe it because I've seen Tampa Bay quite a bit during my days in Boston, and it's just it's what they do, and it works for them to a point. But when you get that far. Sometimes you got to go off script, and he did.
4: Right. Sometimes to go batter by batter. I mean, the guy was just—he yeah. had the first three batters. You know, they took him out twice already. All, oh, you know, both of them.
1: Yeah. They're like, oh, I don't want to. We can't have him up there third time around. Well, why right. not? He's dominated him the first two times. I mean, if he, if a guy gets a hit, you're not going to lose the game. But exactly. Go batter to batter and see what you can get out of him. I mean, he was really disappointed. And frankly, uh, you know, just my opinion, I think he was thrilled to go to San Diego and get out of it.
0: Yeah.
4: The Dodgers went 43 and 17 in the regular season, not not too shabby. Uh, I know the Padres gave we're a good, f- yeah, the Padres team a good fight, but it was really the Dodgers in full control. Was there any game that stood out above it all
1: in the regular season? You know, the funny thing is, the one game that really stood out was the one they lost to Houston in the two game series in LA, where Houston had lost, I don't know, a bunch in a row coming in. They were playing horrible baseball, and they came in and won the first game. They came back to do it, and I just said. This can't happen. And they went out and won the next night. But that one really stood out. You know, it's funny. When a team wins a lot, and you're around a team that wins all the time, it's the losses that stand out uh-huh. more than the wins. Even though you've got some great comeback wins, I think there was one in Arizona where uh, Edwin Rios hit a walk-off, two-run, lead-off home run against Dimeback because of the new extra innings rule. This guy had second base already. He he hammered one. And then Max Muncy had a walk-off sacrifice fly with nobody out. Right, You know, it's an unearned run to the pitcher, but whatever. That new rule, I think, is going away. I I mean, I would like to see it modified where maybe you get to the 15th inning they do it or something like Mm -hmm. that, but in the 10th, I I don't like it. Right. Um,
4: That must have been strange. That must have been strange at the broadcast, uh, broadcasting a a lead-off two-run homer.
1: Yeah. Well, the first thing is, I had to figure out how I was going to mark this in my scorebook because I had never done that. Right. I had seen it before in the Olympics and softball, but not in baseball. So I just, I don't even remember how I did it then. I don't think I had to score a game that way, but so I called my son, my young, my oldest son who worked in the Florida state league calling games for the pirates affiliate there. They actually had that rule. And I said, what did you put in your scorebook? And he told me, he just, you know, put the guy at second base and he said, that's all I did. He goes, I really didn't know what to do. So what I did is I put the guy at second base, makes it look like a double instead of where the writing double, I, you put PR placed runner. And so that's how I would know where he was, but that's all new for us. We're all figuring it out. Some of the stuff as we go, but it was weird. You know, the, the, the extra inning stuff is it helped last year. I get it. Seven inning double headers last year. I get it. We can go back to the nine inning double headers now. Thank we're you.
4: ready Thank you.
3: <laughs> and in the book, you definitely uh don't hide your uh displeasure with uh the Houston Astros and and their sign stealing and, and uh that. And as a matter of fact, it was funny. You you have one thing where the planes are flying up at you know, up above and one has the uh the banner and it says you can't steal this sign. <laughs> That's right. What
1: was funny is we didn't know they were gonna be doing that. So uh you know, Rick Mundy and I are we did both of those games together and i we're starting to tape our pregame segment and out of the corner of my eye i see this plane where it shouldn't be right right above the stadium and it's towing a banner and so instead of stopping the recording i kept going and doing it kind of live to tape like just as i look up this is what i'm seeing so we described it that way and that was the first day there was one plane the second day of course we talked about it on the air quite a bit and the second day there were three planes. So other people got the idea. There were protesters outside the stadium. The organist and our stadium DJ were, were trolling them with every piece of ammunition they could come up with musically. And I think I put a list of the songs in the book that they were mm-hmm. doing that, you know, it's like all uh, in the
3: book. That's your cheap card.
1: And, you know, I saw the sign by Ace of Bass was a good one. But, but look, I've been around. I know that for years teams have been. Teams have been cheating for years, okay? There's many, many teams that would focus cameras on the third base coach or the bench coach to try to get signs. It's been happening a long time. Now, Major League Baseball cracked down on that. That's that's part of baseball's dirty little secret is that that's been going on league-wide for years. They've cracked down on it. I was with the Red Sox when they had the uh, the Fitbit watch scandal. Everybody called it the smart watch or the Apple watch. Now, I, I, I know the guy. I know what kind of watch he had. It was a Fitbit watch. I know what they did. And what they did was they, uh, one of the players who was a Yankee the year before brought the trick over from the Yankees and the Red Sox used it against the Yankees. Uh So the Yankees were upset and they turned in the Red Sox who then went and turned in the Yankees for using the camera on their coaches. So it became a, you know, and man, Bob Manfred was just like, all right, enough. Enough. We're cracking down, and now every camera has to be registered inside a ballpark. Uh, so there's a lot of little things behind the scenes that people don't know about, but that baseball doesn't want people to know about. But that's definitely one of the dirty little secrets that the Astros weren't the only ones cheating, but they were probably the ones that were cheating the most egregiously and in real time. They were able to do it in real time, where everybody else had to watch videos and then go back and decipher them. They, you know, they're still getting. What they earned, no matter where they go on the road, and it was brutal this year when they came to Dodger Stadium. Absolutely brutal. On
4: <laughs> the book is called "Covid Curveball: The Inside View of the 2020 Los Angeles Dodgers World Championship Season." We're here with Tim Neverick, Tim, just, and we appreciate your time. We will have a couple more questions for you. In the playoffs, the Dodgers they, they had a hard time with the Braves, but then there was a, what you call a Mookie moment. They were down three games to one, and then Mookie grabs uh, Freddie Freeman home run. I mean. You, I guess you really like those Mookie moments.
1: Yeah, when I was in Boston and he was there, it just it came out one time during a game, totally just like blurted it out. It's a Mookie moment. And I do it every so often in, in L.A., but not not a lot. But I'll probably hopefully do it a little bit more here in the coming days. But I think that, um, you know, he is a game changer. Defensively, offensively, with his feet. He did things with his feet in the postseason that – I've never seen anybody do. And he's one of the most remarkable players I've ever seen. You know, I was actually talking to him the other day on the field about, I write in the book about, you know, the night that my dad passed and the day after when he took a picture with me. And I said, Do you remember when we took that picture at Fenway? He goes, Yeah, I do. I remember that day. He goes, I know that was a bad day for you. I said, Yeah. I said, But do you know the rest of the story? He said, No. So I got to tell him that when I got the picture framed and gave it to my mother, she went, to the couch took pictures of my own kids down and put that picture of Mookie up there <laughs> and he laughed he thought that was great but that's what happened but Mookie is a he's a special person I root for Mookie pretty hard I you know I'll, I'll, I don't have a lot of favorites but I'll say that he is one of them because I've seen him play so much and I've seen him do some remarkable things on the baseball field that I've never seen anybody do and he is He's a game changer, and the Dodgers knew it. That's why they locked him up long term. He's very happy in L.A. I, I know he's going to have some great moments here down the stretch, and he could have some more mo- moments in the postseason this year as he hopes to carry them to another another World Series win.
4: Well, they got to catch the Giants, and um, it's going to be hard fought down it down to the wire, but the Dodgers are definitely in great position. You can get the book at, I guess, Amazon, but you go to the local book, so if they don't have it, ask for it. They can always order it. Tim, this has been great. We appreciate you having you on. Anything else you'd like to say before we let you go?
1: Yeah, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's available in uh, hardcover, Kindle, and also an audiobook is available. It's on audible.com, but do some one-stop shopping at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, you know, wherever you're going to get your books. And also, because we can't do a lot of book events at bookstores due to COVID still, what we've been doing is going on social media, either Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and offering an opportunity for people to get signed copies that way. All they have to do is message me on any one of those uh, social media platforms, and I'll get back to them with details on how they can get a signed book shipped to them.
4: And I also saw on social media that one of your good friends, who was a guest on our podcast, also Eric Sherman, I saw him with, with the book on social media.
1: Yeah, he's, uh, he was out here with me in L.A. Uh, last week he's uh, he's working on another book project that you guys will probably have to talk to him about sometime in the future. But, uh, so I I was helping him with some people out here in LA and he was here for about a week and went back, but he's doing well. And uh, he and I are, are former college teammates. So we've known each other a long, long time and we've always stayed in touch and we see each other quite a bit over the course of the year.
3: Yeah. Eric's a good guy. Yeah. And when, uh, when Jeff and I are reading a book, We'll call each other like we saw Eric Sherman and then you you mentioned an article in the, um, the Wall Street Journal that Jared Diamond had written and he was a guest of ours for his book, Swing Kings. We called Jeff. Did you see
4: he mentioned <laughs> Jared Diamond? <laughs> <laughs> just just like the guests Just happens to be you know these different people that we've had on in the, yeah, in the book it's, um, it's um,
1: that's good. terrific yeah.
4: it's you know
3: it's yeah. six degrees or whatever you call it so yeah. it's, it, it's nice to see all the connections and yes we yeah. greatly thank appreciate you. you coming on the show tim and well thank you it's my
1: pleasure i'm glad you're enjoying the book I'm glad you you've enjoyed it uh, glad you're telling people about it because it's an, it's kind of an important document too uh, i think chronicling a world championship season. And I think that uh, there's a lot of other messages in there, too, that I think people would be interested in knowing. I mean, a lot of those stories I've never told before. I didn't want the book to be about me. I wanted, you know, I wanted to kind of weave what I was experiencing and have experienced into this this realm. And I, you know, I didn't try to take you inside the the clubhouse because I wasn't allowed there. So why fake it? Right. So right. I took where I was allowed to go. I talked to the people I was allowed to the, in, in the only ways that I could, which was through Zoom. I didn't do one one-on-one interview uh, face-to-face the entire season. I did some on television where I could see the guys on camera. They could see me on the monitor, but that was it. And I actually went down to Dave Roberts the other day and I said, Dave, do you realize this is the first face-to-face conversation we've had in over a year? He goes, I do realize that. And he goes, I think it stinks. So it's coming back slowly in terms of how we cover the game because without being there, in fact, I was just watching the Yankees and watching the Yankee telecast, and they were saying how much they don't like not seeing the game in front of them. And I sympathize with them. I really do because Mm -hmm. I get it. Hopefully we'll be back on the road next season. I know we're not going anywhere this year, but hopefully we can go back and tell the real story the way it is instead of watching it on television. Cause it's like, if you're a news editor, you tell your reporter, well, why don't you stay home, watch the other channels coverage of that fire and then report on it. <laughs> All right.
3: That's exactly what it is. The book even has a forward by oral Horscheiser, which is, which is a fun read too. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, oral,
1: oral did a great job with it. Oral yeah. did a fantastic job with it. He takes you right into his brain just before he throws the last pitch of the 88 world series. And, and then bridges it to 2020. It's really, he did a really good job. I, I know the, the editors at the publishing house were, they got back to me after they read it and they were like, wow, that is pretty detailed. That's really good. We didn't expect that, but we're glad he did it.
4: Tim, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. And good luck for you the rest and the Dodgers the rest of the season.
1: Thank you very much. I'm happy to do it and uh, look forward to talking to you guys again someday.
3: Thank Great. you. We thank would you. like that. Thanks, Tim.
4: Okay. And thank you to Tim. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The 2020 uh, baseball season. I I think he covered it pretty well, you know? (laughs) Yeah. You know, you don't realize till you read this book. I mean, you
3: you know that all this stuff went on, but that's a year that you're just not going to forget.
4: No, no. But you know what? The Dodgers have a pretty good team to uh, follow it up. They just might go back to back. They might. They might. That was a
3: season that they, you know, every game, what was so exciting about that season if if you got to look at the positives you got to look at the excitement is it was almost like a football season where every game means something you know 16 games they all mean something pretty much and with 60 games it's not like with 162 where you know you win a few you lose a few 60 games you really have to you, you, you lose five or six games in a row and, and, and it's, you know,
4: your season could be over. Yeah. I mean, our Mets could have used a 60 game season this year. <laughs> in, in the
3: playoffs. <laughs> Oh, please, please. Oh. You know what, Jeff, I got to tell you, if I had been at Yankee stadium for just a couple more hours that day, they may have converted me. That was, I think that was a conversion day. Oh, I think that's what the purpose of the day was <laughs> to convert us into yankee fans but anyway jeff we've got to thank joey machado tim neverett we've got to thank Bree blackford of elder's kitchen don't forget the contest people who's elder that's right who is
4: elder remember email us baseball and bbq at gmail.com with your answer
3: jeff that's episode 102 yes in the books And 103 is just going to be as good, maybe better. Maybe. But the one thing I do know about it is I will see you there. Take us out with Ace and Bobo. From our friends, the poet, Shel Krakowski, the musician, Dave Dresser. See ya. Mm